My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Have you ever been offended at a church? Maybe someone was rude to you. Maybe you have felt that the pastor has ignored you. Maybe you were the subject of a gossip at the church. Maybe at your church you saw blatant hypocrisy, like the pastor running off with his secretary, or it becomes common knowledge that the choir director is crooked in business, or the treasurer turns out to embezzle a large sum of money from the offerings. Others get offended by how the church funds are spent. Offenses can happen and do happen all too often in the very place where we should be focusing on worshiping God. The word offend as it is used in the Bible means to cause to stumble. As a result of offenses, many people who still attend church are spiritually stumbling and ready to fall. The fact is they are no longer listening to God's word or singing praises from their hearts. All they can see and hear is what offends them. Many others have walked away from church and some of those will never return. Why is this so? Have you ever seriously thought about it? Is it not possible that such offenses are not accidental, but are attempts by Satan himself to keep sincere people who might listen to the truth of God's word from hearing it? To be sure, there are some churches that should be forsaken, but is that true of all of them? Are there not sincere believers who are seeking to follow the Bible and trying to walk in obedience to God with whom you can worship and fellowship? Often there are solid churches for true believers to attend, but some have sadly stumbled from the blessings associated with worshiping and growing with a church family. In our series on the messages that Jesus Christ himself preached, our Lord is having his final major conversation with his disciples before his betrayal, crucifixion, and death. In our text for today, Jesus explains his concern for his disciples that they would not be offended. This shows the reality and the seriousness of offenses for even the strongest of believers. I pray you will listen as our pastor examined Christ's words in John chapter 16 in a message he has entitled, Do Not Be Offended. This morning, I'd like you to turn with me, please, to, um, to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. It's interesting, as I was studying this week, um, what Jesus was really trying to accomplish, one of the main goals he's trying to accomplish in what we call this upper room discourse, where he is having his last talk with his disciples before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, is arrested, and, and never has this ministry with him again in the same, in the same way. Um, he is, his time on earth with them is about done. And, and so I want you to notice John 16 and verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not that ye should not be offended. Isn't that interesting? What does it mean to be offended? What's that, Mike? Ah, uh, you kind of have the idea of upset. That's not what this word means, but yes. Yes. Tony? Yes, the idea was made to stumble. To be offended in the scriptural sense is to be made to stumble. And so what Jesus is saying is I have I've said this to you, and he's talking about all that he's been talking about. And you're from chapter 13 right through. This is one continuous um, uh, message that Christ is giving to his disciples, one continuous talk. And I don't believe it ends with chapter 15. I think he's continuing on with that thought. And so that's the purpose, that's the reason behind the title for the message this morning, Do Not Be Offended. And so before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity of studying your word together. Lord, it's just amazing, um, uh, the power of it, the truth of it. 
And so we ask that you'll give us grace. Um, for Lord, Satan would love to push any one of us in the wrong direction and cause us to stumble. And Lord, we know that um, unfortunately there are people who stumble away from the faith uh, and are uh, because tragically they've not been converted yet and they never return. And yet at, that's not where these disciples are at. These are these are committed believers. And they are being tempted. They will be tempted over the next uh, several days. They would be tempted to fall away, to stumble, and to um, possibly never be the same. And we thank you for our Lord's concern for them. We thank you for our Lord's concern for us today. And we pray that you'll accomplish what you want as we look into your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice, first of all, let me see if I can bring this up for you. That would be helpful. Is it not coming up for you? All right, let me reboot it here. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to cheat for with me for a second and go back to chapter um, 13. And just run your eyes through that chapter and see if you can notice what our Lord was trying to do with his disciples. Uh, what he was trying to say to them. And what I've done is I've just gone back and tried to give you some major thoughts that Jesus gave in, in each of the, ch the first three chapters of this discourse um, uh, to his disciples. So the first is chapter 13, obviously. And you'll notice that in the first part of this chapter, what is Jesus doing with his disciples? What's he doing to them? He's washing their feet. That's exactly right. And what was the big lesson? I want you to do to each other like I'm doing to you. Be a servant. Be a servant. That's a huge part of, again, trying to live life when Jesus isn't around. They're going to have to copy his character of being a servant. Now, um, something else that the Lord is, is uh, telling them, the next thing that happens, he begins to point out, uh, I'm at verse 18 now of chapter 13. He begins to point out that, that a betrayer is among them. And um, now I want you to notice... Verse 19 specifically, he says, Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, he's talking about the betrayal of Judas, ye may believe that I am he. And so what uh, the Lord is trying to emphasize to his disciples is God's sovereignty, the fact that the Lord is not taken by surprise by what's about to happen. Because this is going to rock them. Uh, it, again, those of you that served in the military, if you were in a very small unit, to see one of your buddies go down, to see one of them die, that's going to be what this is going to be like for these disciples. They have been around Christ for about three years. They've been living together. They've been eating and fellowshipping and working together. And now Judas is not only going to betray the Lord, he's going to commit suicide. He's going to be a casualty to Satan. This is going to be very difficult. What are they going to have to, they're going to have to hang on to the fact that God's still in control, that this did not surprise the Lord. Now, there's one other thing that Jesus deals with. You, you find it right around verse 34 and 35 of chapter 13. And what was that? Yeah, the new commandment. The idea that you need to love your Christian brother as Jesus loves you. Which is a higher commandment than love your neighbor as yourself. We've talked about that on a number of occasions. Okay, let's go to chapter 14 now. All right, in chapter 14, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. What's he talking about when he talks about his Father's house? Heaven. Very good. So he's telling them, don't forget. There's four great promises in this chapter. First one is eternal life in heaven. Remember that wonderful promise. Now, skip down if you would. Um, look at verse 12 of chapter 14. Verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Think about that one. Greater works than Jesus got done, we're going to do? Well, collectively, yes. The church across the world? Absolutely. So Jesus is giving them the promise that you can be part of God's great work across the earth. And, of course, they would be part of that. They would, they would sow the seeds of the gospel ministry across the world. Now, what comes next? Um, skip down, if you would, verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. And so we have the promise of the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit. Because I want you to notice, he will abide with you for how long? At the end of verse 16. Forever. Now to me, that also goes to solving the issue of can you lose your salvation? Because if the Holy Spirit comes in and he abides forever, that should tell us that um, our salvation is eternal. Okay, now let's go down to the last part of chapter 14. And I want you to notice... Um, Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So what's this fourth promise? Yes, whose peace? Yeah, God's peace, Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. It's not the kind of peace that the world offers, which is simply uh, kind of nice circumstances. Jesus' peace is something internal that, that lasts to whatever the circumstances. My peace I give unto you. Now, let's go to chapter 15 then. And in chapter 15, you'll find there are four major relationships that Jesus is dealing with his disciples. Okay, here's how you handle these four relationships. The first one, I believe, is probably the greatest priority. All right? Um, uh, if you look at verse... Uh, seven, that'd be a good one to look at. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. So what is the first um, thing that Jesus is really trying to get across to these guys? What the relationship with, with them and whom? Himself. Very good. Abide in me. Okay, there's the relationship with Christ. All right, now uh, skip down, if you would, and notice... Uh, let's see, verse 17, these things I command you, that ye love one another. Same idea, uh, bookends of this one, verse 21, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, that was the wrong spot, 17 is the end of it, verse 12 is the beginning of it, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So again, there's the relationship with your Christian brother or sister that Jesus is emphasizing. All right, then um, there's a third relationship. If you start with verse 18, that's the end of that bookend of, of 17 where we love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And Jesus, for the next several verses, talks about our relationship with the lost world. And then, skip down to verse 26, and here's your fourth relationship. 
But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeded from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. So there's our fourth relationship, the relationship with the Holy Spirit. And that relationship is what is where we learn about the Lord. And uh, we also are uh, emboldened in our witness. So that's what Jesus has addressed so far. Now we come to chapter 16, and I want you to notice um, uh, Christ is concerned in verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. And so the Lord is expressing his concern that we not be offended. And I want you to notice, or cause to stumble, cause to, to stray away from God's will for our, for our life as Christians. Certainly these men were, were not going to lose their salvation. But he is concerned that they not stumble away. Um, now, there are three different things that Jesus brings up in this chapter that can offend us. And I want you to see this one for yourself um, before I show it to you. And that is, let's notice if you would, verse 2, and the section goes down to verse 6. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. They're actually going to think that they're pleasing God by killing you. By the way, who would fit that category? Who would fit that type of person? I'm sorry? Well, you're thinking of the, yes, the Muslims today. I'm thinking about Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul. He thought he was pleasing God. Verse 3, And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. I could protect you at the beginning. I'm not going to be here. Now think about that. Now, look at verse 5. So, by the way, from the first two, 2 to 4, verses 2 to 4, what is a problem that the disciples are going to face? Persecution. Very good. But I want you to notice again, at the end of verse 5, he said, I didn't, I didn't tell you this at the beginning because I was with you. Verse 5. But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me whither goest thou, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow hath filled your heart. So what's also happening in addition to persecution? What did you say, Steve? They are gonna, who are they losing? They're losing Jesus. He was their stability. I want you to think then, they're being not be they're not to be offended even though they're seemingly facing opposition alone have you been there where you're going through a very difficult time in your life and it seems like there's not a human on earth that really gets it and not only that but it seems like god is silent And the temptation is to stumble. To make some kind of a decision that you'll regret. So we had two problems that we've already looked at. Persecution and then no physical presence of Christ. 
He's not going to be there with them. Now, in verses 7 to 15, we have the solution. And you'll notice I put a capital S for the solution. Because there is one major solution to this, and his presence is going to have major ramifications. But I want you to notice verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. Now, what does he mean is expedient for you that I go away? It's better for you that I'm leaving. Now, if that doesn't shake their minds, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, again, who is the Comforter? The Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, it is better to live your life without me physically present Without the Holy Spirit, it is better, excuse me, it's, it's better to live your life with the Holy Spirit's presence within you than if Jesus were physically present and you didn't have the Holy Spirit inside your life. Isn't that amazing? Now, the Holy Spirit has been around them, He's been ministering, but He has not indwelled them. This is something that is unique to the church age, that um, uh, I, very well may be going beyond our age, but, but this is something that had not been a permanent thing, and that is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, it is actually better that I'm leaving, that you may have the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think, why would that be so? Well, let's take the disciples for a minute, and let's think about the time where Jesus was, um, had just fed the 5,000. And he said to them, uh, go ahead and take the boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they get out on the boat... And uh, does anybody remember what happened as they're rowing across the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, a major storm came up. And what's the problem? Jesus is not there. Yeah, he's back on shore. Now, Mike's ahead of me. No, he wasn't in the boat yet. No, he actually was on shore. Now, when Jesus showed up, everything changed. But when he wasn't there, that was an extremely dangerous situation. Not only that, but the disciples themselves were rightfully uh, uh, very much afraid. And even when Jesus walked across the water to them, they were afraid of, of when they first saw him, if you recall. Now imagine the difference when instead of the Lord is on shore and I'm out here by myself, if now you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, God himself dwelling within you wherever you go. Think also about the impact of, of God himself dwelling in you, not just on the safety factor, but think of it on how the difference that God makes in your life and, and, and the power that you have. If you remember when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, the other nine were down below. And they encountered a man who was demon-possessed. Uh, a man brought his son, Is actually the son was demon-possessed. And the disciples were unable to heal the man. Now again, the issue was faith. But when Jesus showed up, things changed. Imagine what it's like that we now, everywhere we go, God himself indwells us. And Jesus rightly says, fellas, it's better for you that I'm going. 
Because the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is going to indwell you. Now, he's going to do um, three different things that Jesus mentions here in his ministry. And notice, if you would, verse 8. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, there's the three things that the, the Holy Spirit will do when he indwells you. Um, in this world, he's going to reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, <clears throat> he's going to indwell, the, but he's not only just going to indwell you, he's going to, he's going to convict the world. Now, what is the sin that he convicts the world of, specifically? Verse 9, of sin, because they believe not on me. Can I tell you, I was thinking about this this week as I was studying this. Can you tell me a greater sin than rejecting God's Son and the sacrifice of the cross? Can you think of a greater sin? I will submit to you, you cannot. The very fact of saying to God, who gave his Son so that I could be saved... That Jesus died on the cross and paid for every sin that I have ever committed. To turn around and say to God, no thank you, I don't want your gift of eternal life. I do not want your son. I do not want your forgiveness. I don't think I need it. I would submit to you that is the greatest sin you can commit. And that Jesus Christ is obviously being, the Holy Spirit's ministry in this world is to convict the unbeliever of that specific sin. Now obviously there are other sins involved. But I would just encourage you on this issue because some of you think, well, boy, this person's such a nice person and they're, 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 they're much nicer than many Christians I know and, 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 and therefore um, they, they, you know, I, I just have a hard time believing that God will send them to hell. There is no greater sin than to say to God, nope, I don't want you. I don't want your son. I don't care about his sacrifice for me. I'm going to go on my own. The Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin. The sin of not believing in Jesus. He convicts the world of righteousness. Verse 10 explains that. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. In Jesus' public ministry and his days on earth, there were many people that were slandering his character. Many people that said that Christ was a, 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 a false prophet, that said he was a fake, that, that said he um, was uh, all kinds of things. They slandered him. His enemies said that he got his power from Satan. May I say that the Holy Spirit's ministry on this world, specifically because of what Jesus said, I go to my Father and you see me no more. What, 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 what would precede then his, re, his return to the Father? What would have to happen first? His death? Okay. That what happened after that? His resurrection. And his ascension back to heaven. Folks, the resurrection of Christ and his ascension to heaven have proved that Jesus was not a mere false prophet. And even today, in spite of all of the wickedness that is going on, there are very few, I mean very few people, who slander Jesus. They slander his children. And they'll say things like this, well, you don't practice anything like what Jesus practiced. 
And there are people that will try to just say he was a good human, etc., a nice man, uh, a godly teacher. But, but very few people say, would make the same slanderous things today that, that were being made in his lifetime. His resurrection and his ascension and the Holy Spirit's work among, among society today, among the world today, has, 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 has um, testified to Jesus' righteousness. The Holy Spirit would also convict the world of judgment. Verse 11. Why? Because the prince of this world is judged. And who's the prince of this world? Satan. Can I say to you that again, all across the world... If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. People understand Satan did not win at the cross. He thought he did. But show me the person who's going around teaching that today. As bad as uh, false teachers can be. There just isn't much denying the fact that Satan lost at the cross. He didn't win at the cross. The prince of this world has been judged. And the cross is the proof of that. The resurrection and the ascension demonstrated that. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to this. And so the Holy Spirit's ministry of convicting the world is still going on. And can I tell you this? That don't let Satan talk you out of that. Sometimes we get the impression that no one's going to listen in this generation. I, I got there a number of years ago. Until I realized that God's word is just the same. God's spirit is just the same. And God is working in people's lives. The Holy Spirit's still working. Remember Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Or the, Actually, that word means age. I'm with you to the end of the age. God's power is not one bit less than it was the days that, that the apostles were alive. And I'm convinced that he wants to do a greater work than ever in this generation. He will convict the world. The Holy Spirit's got one more ministry that Jesus mentions to his disciples on that evening. And that is he will teach you. He'll teach you his followers. Verse 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Boy, I'm thankful for the Lord understanding who we are and what we're like. And he's just saying, you, can't, you just can't handle it right now. How be it? When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now there's one of the first things that Jesus specifically says the Holy Spirit is going to teach us about, and that is things to come. Now, don't get the impression that you're somehow going to have a dream at night because you ate too much uh, ice cream and you're going to have a vision as to what uh, God's going to do in the future. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying this, that Jesus specifically, uh, through the Holy Spirit, enlightened the apostles. And if you think about the apostle Paul, the apostle John, Peter, to be able to write prophecy as to what's coming. We now through the Holy Spirit's enlightenment and illumination, can, we now can, can, can study those scriptures and know much about what is to come. But the Holy Spirit's going to do something else just then uh, talked about things that are to come. Verse 14, He shall glorify me. Oh, there's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit really doesn't draw attention to Himself. That's not His ministry. And that's why we do want to honor and we want to... Um, be led by the Spirit. We want to be constantly um, under the authority of the Spirit of God. But 
there can be times you you find people who who are um, really that the Holy Spirit is the only thing they talk about. And to be honest with you, that's not what the Holy Spirit's saying. He actually glorifies Jesus, and He leads us to exalt Christ. He shall glorify Me, for He shall receive of Mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Which means this, the Holy Spirit is speaking for God the Father and God the Son. What his ministry is, is to uphold Jesus Christ to the world. And that's what he does. So the first way that we can be offended is when we think we're all alone and we're going through persecution. Now there's a second way we can be offended. You'll find it in verse uh, 16, and it goes down to verse 25, it's similar but not the same. And notice again, verse 16, a little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, what is this that he saith unto us, a little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me, and because I go to the Father. They said therefore, what is this that he saith a little while, we cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me? Verily I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful. What do you think Jesus is referring to about this time that the disciples are going to be weeping and in sorrow and the world will be rejoicing? After his crucifixion. So our next time that we can be offended is by what I'll just call severe trials. When it seems like just the unthinkable happens. I I almost entitled this message uh, when I was first looking at the passage, How God Can Overcome or Use Your Worst Nightmare. Because that's what the crucifixion was to these men. It was their worst nightmares. Not that they hadn't heard Jesus talk about it, but because of the humiliation of crucifixion, because of the torturous death of crucifixion, because of the fact that they would lose their the privilege of walking and talking with, with, with Jesus. This was their worst nightmare. And so I want you to, again, look at the problems, and then we'll look at the solution. Well, the first problem that often happens during severe trials that you can see with these disciples is, confu- is, 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 uh, is sorrow. And you see that where he says, you shall lament and weep. There in verse 20, the world will be rejoicing. But also, have you ever been where you were just in abject confusion? Just didn't understand what God's doing. The disciples didn't even understand what Jesus was saying. And I think that sometimes, even worse than the problem itself, than the sorrows you're you're feeling, is that confusion of, what does God want me to do? Where is God? What possible good can come out of this? I mean, you just think, of the of the of the days between Jesus crucifixion and his resurrection. I mean that crucifixion was unjust, the greatest injustice ever committed by man. It was violent, it was humiliating. 
And they've got all of that, uh, all of that confusion. Why did God allow this? Why would God's son be murdered? And what's going to happen to our nation now? Well, what's the solution? When you're going through times of, of, of severe trial and you're tempted to stumble away. Well, the first one is to remember that suffering is only temporary. Notice how Jesus puts this to these men. He says that the world, again, and shall, we, shall, shall rejoice and you're going to be weeping in verse 20. But notice the last part of verse 20. But your sorrow shall be turned to joy. It's not going to last forever. And this is a simple truth, but it's something that we need to hang on to in severe trials. This is not going to last forever. Verse 21. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow. And that's about the most painful experience that maybe human beings go through, and that is a woman going through childbirth. Because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And so when that child is born, the, 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 the mother who was suffering so greatly just moments before is now joy. And it says in verse 22, And now ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your, your, your separation from me is temporary. Your, your, your trial is temporary. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Even in some of our requests this morning, we're talking about people with physical illnesses. And thank the Lord, many of them know the Lord as Savior. And I can't promise you this if you don't know Christ as Savior. Because to be honest with you, when you leave this world, you're headed toward a place where suffering is eternal. But when you know Christ as Savior, when you're a child of God, you can rest in the fact that suffering is always temporary. Always, always, always. It's going to end. Something else that we need to hang on to, it's a solution when we're in times of great trial. And it's something that the devil will slander. And that is that God hears your prayers. He does. And the disciples, to this point, had the privilege of being able to go to Jesus directly. Remember Peter? <laughs> Probably one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. He's, he's, he's starting to sink in the, in, the, in the Sea of Galilee. Lord, save me. That was it. And Jesus reached out his hand and grabs him. They don't have that going forward. But they do have this that Jesus tells them about, verse 23. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This is the new way to pray for the Christian. And that, was, that is now we get to pray to God the Father directly. Don't have to go through a priest. Don't have to go through anyone else. But I go in the name of Jesus. God's Son. That's why, folks, with this attack that we've seen over the last many years of praying in public in Jesus' name, can I just say, I, 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 I wouldn't pray without using Jesus' name. Because the bottom line is this. My prayers are not based upon my goodness or they'd go nowhere. We pray in Jesus' name because what we're saying is, God, I, I'm coming before you because of what Jesus did for me. 
And it bothers me when we take that off of our prayers. I, I don't believe that is right. It is not merely praying to the Father in your name. Because the Father is, I'm, I'm just saying I'm praying to the Father in the Father's name. That's not what Jesus said. He said, pray in my name. I'm praying in Jesus' name. And I ought not to be ashamed to do it. Verse 24, look at it again. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. This is new. You haven't been doing this before. Now you have this privilege of doing this. You talk to the Father directly. You're encouraged to pray to the Father. And you pray in Jesus' name. And notice, He's encouraging us to do it. Ask. Some people think, well, I'm not going to bother God. God's got too many other people to worry about it. Let me just say this. That's, that God's a lot bigger than that. You're not bothering Him. He wants you to talk to Him. And you're not doing any favors for Him. He wants to talk to you. You're not taxing Him. You're not overburdening Him. I'm thankful that's part of my Christian heritage being brought up in a, in a godly home. I, I knew enough about God to know I wasn't going to bother Him when I prayed. Verse 25, these things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name. And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. You'll notice that they now have a love relationship with God the Father himself by simply being a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's not merely for those disciples 2,000 years ago. That's for you too. And that is if you love Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus, then that means that you belong to God the Father. You can come before him as your father. Day or night. You're never bothering him. You're never taxing him. You're never giving him too much to do. You're encouraged to come before God the Father in Jesus' name and ask for his help. Well, there's a third offense. And this one, I think, can sometimes be the most difficult to deal with. Although the first one's difficult. When you feel like you're, um, you know, you don't know where God's at, you feel like you're all alone. But this one, to not be offended by human error. I think it's very difficult because can you imagine in those days between Jesus' crucifixion and the resurrection, the disciples we know were hiding in what's called the upper room. They were hiding in, in, a, in a place where they would try to, they were afraid that they were going to be next, by the way. But let's remember, there are men and there's women there as well, very possibly. And they're just like we are. Don't you think they must have played the what-if game? I believe that one of the hardest trials to endure is when you feel that human error is involved. And let me give you two ways this happens. First of all, you feel that you let somebody down. Let me give you an example. Let's say you notice that your spouse had a lump or some abnormality that might need a doctor to look at. For whatever reason, you did not push your spouse to check it out. A few months later, you end up, for some other reason, going, and you find out that your spouse has an advanced cancer, and then comes the what if. What if I'd encouraged my spouse to go earlier? Sometimes the human error involves somebody else letting you down. 
Let's take another situation, a health problem. You think there's a health problem, you spot something going on, but instead this person goes to a doctor trying to get help, and the doctor misdiagnoses it. You don't find that out till months later. And all of a sudden, you're in a advanced problem because someone else let you down. Both of these situations are difficult to handle when you consider that if errors were not made, the situation could have been far different. Could the disciples not have battled both of these emotions? Especially in the days between Jesus' death and his resurrection? How many of them must have said, why didn't I do something different? Why did I run in the garden? Maybe some of them said, Peter, why would you take out that sword? You messed everything up. We could have gone off and we could have got organized. wonder if any of them thought later on they should have organized a resistance and, and tried, to, tried to capture Christ before his horrific death. wonder how many of them, I know some of them were at the cross. John was there. Peter uh, uh, seems to have been there. How many of them imagined in those days between his resurrection and his crucifixion, going up there and, 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 and fighting off the Roman soldiers and taking him down before he died? The question can be asked, why did I not do something different? Or even amongst themselves, why didn't you do something different? Human error can almost drive us to the point where we will do things that are very foolish. It can drive us that way. And remember, Jesus starts out this chapter by saying, I've told you these things, so you will not stumble. Well, I want you to notice the problem with human error. And I'll give you two. Verse 29. And his disciples said unto him, Lo, thou speak, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Jesus had just said, I, I've gone to the Father, I've come from the Father, I've come to the earth, now I'm going back to the Father. So now they say, okay, now we got it. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. By the way, they had said that earlier, that they believed that. But now they're saying it again. They've been doubting. They've been struggling. And so they say, now we're sure. You've told us that you've come from the Father. You've gone to earth. Now you're going back to the Father. You've told us that. And, and they knew Christ well enough to trust him. They said, now we believe you came forth from God. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? See, problem number one is this. You may have less faith than you imagine. And all of a sudden... You're in a situation and you behave in a way that you did not expect you would behave. And you say to yourself, how could I have done that? How could I have failed the Lord so miserably? Well, you didn't have the faith you thought you had, did you? It's true for all of us, folks. Well, there's a second possibility, and it's along the same line. Maybe others around you didn't have the faith you thought they had. Of course, that's a painting behind you of the Apostle Peter 
denying the Lord. Can you imagine some of the disciples who said, you know, Peter, we looked to you. We thought you were a leader. I don't know what they said in those days between Christ's death and his resurrection, but I can tell you this, if, if God didn't help them, they could have easily torn each other apart. Well, what's the solution? Can I just say that the biggest solution to human error is to get your eyes off yourself and off the people who have failed you and get your eyes back on Jesus Christ. It's just vital. Notice how Jesus handles this. Because he said, um, he's really implied, you don't have the faith you think you have. Matter of fact, look at verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. What's he saying? What's he really saying? You're going to fail me. You're going to fail me. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus, when you look at him, and he wants them to understand this, Jesus already knows when you're going to fail him. He already knows it. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know it. Why? So he could be cruel to them at this time? Is that what he's trying to do? Is Jesus just trying to rub salt in the wound that's coming? And say, well, guys, you're just a failure and you're going to fail me. Is that what Jesus is trying to do to these people? I think you know he's not. Why would he say it before they did it? Why would he tell them before they failed him? Why would he do that? Certainly would be a reality check, that's true. I'm sorry. He wanted them to know that he knows it because of a couple things. You're exactly right. He still loves them. Knowing they will fail him. And he will be loyal to them. Knowing he will, they will fail him. Boy, I'll tell you what. Jesus already knew that his disciples would fail him, and so you need, when you look at Christ, see his foreknowledge, see the, the this fact, and, it, and it's, it's inescapable. That before Jesus died on the cross, he already knew what you would do. Before, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, he already knows and already knew what you would do and the failure that you were going to commit. He already knew about that. See his foreknowledge, see the very fact that, that he still loved you, still died for you, still called out for you to salvation, knowing when you would fail him. I'm not trying to minimize the sin, to be clear. I'm not trying to do that at all. We certainly can push people the wrong direction because of our sins, and we are responsible for our influence. But you cannot force someone to do wrong. And the world can't force you to do wrong. And the Lord understands that when we sin, we can come before Him. He still is loyal to us. I'm so thankful that He is. 
And I want you to notice verse 33. Knowing that they were about to fail him. Notice what he says. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have what? Peace. He wants them to have peace. Even after they fail him. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. He wants them to have joy. I have overcome the world. You see his knowledge and I want you to also see his love. Loving us though he knows we will fail him. Loving you though he knows you will fail him. You hasten to some conclusions. Number one. Uh, loyal followers of Christ can be offended. That's why Jesus is giving us this. He's giving this to his own followers, to his loyal followers. Judas is not there. So loyal and dedicated followers of Christ can be offended, can be caused to stumble. Why? By feeling that God is far away in times of trial. Remember the Holy Spirit's eternal presence upon you. By, feeling, by going through severe suffering. And, and, but remember that suffering is temporary and that God is hearing your prayers. Or by just experiencing human error. I failed. Or someone else failed me. Get your eyes back on the Lord. Because Jesus, not only, uh, He foresees your need. So remember th- these four takeaways. As we go home, the Holy Spirit's permanent indwelling. He lives within you if you have accepted Christ as Savior. Number two, problems are only temporary for the Christian. Number three, Christ's invitation to pray to God the Father in Jesus' name. And when you pray in Jesus' name, you say, well, I'm not worthy. I failed the Lord. I get that. That's why you're not praying in your own name. That's why you're not praying in anyone else's name. You're praying in Jesus' name because Jesus has paid for all your sin. And human error is foreseen by God. Let me take you to one passage in closing. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. The author of Hebrews, again, puts our eyes back on Jesus. When we're tempted or when we to, to go astray or when we might even have failed the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Don't be offended. Don't walk away. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin, which means this, when you're tempted to think, does God understand? The answer is yes, he does. And he went through all, all the types, types of temptations like we would, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. You say, Pastor, I failed the Lord. I don't even believe I can pray. And the author of Hebrews under inspiration of God says, no, no, don't do that. When you're, when you're tempted to stumble, when you're tempted to lose your profession, that's when you want to pray. And come boldly. The idea is, 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 is maybe the, the, the thing that goes completely against you. say, I just want to hide in a corner for a while. No, come boldly before the throne of grace. And God's grace is the place of God's help. That we may obtain what? Mercy. That God may not give us what we deserve. Because we failed him. 
and find grace to help in time of need. You find the grace of God to help you when you're tempted to stumble. Don't turn away. Satan can't make you turn away. But you can make that, uh, you, you, you're going to have to make the choice to stick with God. Through severe trials, through times when you may feel like nobody understands that God isn't even there for me. Even through times when you feel like you've failed or other people have failed you. Don't walk away from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come before your throne. And Lord, sometimes in our humanness, it doesn't feel like the prayers are getting through. It feels like there's something wrong, like like you don't care, you're not answering. Lord, in our, our situation right now, we think of Becky Pelletier. She's in that type of a situation, she and her husband. Lord, I think of my, my, my parents. There, there, I bet you there are tens, dozens of, 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 of situations like this across just this room. But Lord, you've told us that when we pray in Jesus' name, you hear us. Lord, you've told us that you are the Holy Spirit indwells us eternally. May we, you've told us that suffering is temporary. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us not to walk away when we're tempted. We pray this for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name. Let me invite you, if you don't currently attend a Bible preaching church, to consider visiting us at Calkins as soon as you're able. Our Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. We have classes for all ages and a nursery is provided. Our morning worship service begins at approximately 10 a.m. and our Sunday evening Bible study starts at 6.30 p.m. We'd love to see you in person if God wills. For those of you who can't make it in person, we live stream many of our services. You can access them live on our Facebook page by searching for Calkins Baptist Church on that platform. Remember that Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Our page also contains a link to all the podcasts of these radio messages. Also, several months back, we began uploading videos of our services to YouTube, so if you don't have Facebook and would like to view a message, you can search for Coffins Baptist Church on YouTube, and you'll find the beginning of our presence there. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. For me, he died. Sting life and light, he free.